Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, compañeros, welcome back to another special edition of the Fifth Column Podcast. Normally, an episode like this would be behind the paywall, and I encourage you to go over to wethefifth.substack.com and sign up, because the rest of them will be behind the paywall, and you subscribing allows us to do extra episodes like this, and... You know, there's only one issue really in the news right now. We're going to be getting back to all the other issues, and that is the hideous attack on Israel from the troglodytes of Hamas. And we'll have a few more episodes about this that will be behind the paywall with people that we know, people who report on this, people who are involved in this in some way. But, but the one you're going to listen to today is a conversation that I had last night with my old pal, Oren Kessler. And Oren Kessler is an Israeli. Uh, he's also American. He lives in Tel Aviv, and he has written for the Jerusalem Post. He's translated for Haaretz. He's been a think tank guy, and he has a book that came out this year in 2023, earlier uh, this year, called Palestine 1936, about the Arab Revolt, one of the few books that covers this incredibly important and often overlooked period in the Israel-Palestine conflict. So check that book out. But this was a hard interview to do. And you'll understand why pretty soon is that Oren, um, and he mentions this in the interview, so I'm going to say it up front, and I don't think you'd mind me putting this up front. Um, Oren got married on Saturday here in New York City, and uh, before he was to get married, he found out that his homeland had been attacked by Hamas terrorists, and that in his, as he mentions, his very small family, a member of his family was killed. And we talk about that up front. But obviously, this has really affected Orrin. And it's apparent in, in this interview, and I really appreciate him taking the time to talk to us during this um, horrendous time for, for him, his country, his family. So one other small thing was I recorded this last night, and I did say at some point that, you know, we were having this ludicrous debate online about, you know, how many babies had been just murdered and how many had been beheaded. And this, of course, became a conversation about propaganda during war and who can you trust and, you know, make sure to verify all this stuff. It's you know impossible to verify this stuff when you're sitting um, in New York City or as most of the people that are tweeting at me about this stuff are in various places in America and Europe. And I said at some point that these things did happen because a number of people had said that they did, and I trust some of these people. And then on top of it, you had the President of the United States, Joe Biden, saying that he had seen these photos. Now, a day later, I left that in there, I didn't cut it out. I left it in there, could have easily cut it out. But uh, a day later, obviously, Joe Biden has walked that back, because Joe Biden says a lot of things. And um, as somebody else pointed out, he claimed yesterday that Golda Meir said something to him that was something that Golda Meir very famously said to Henry Kissinger. So I don't know why I thought I could trust the president in this moment, and maybe that's my own biases showing through. But uh, the Israeli government uh, actually released some sickening photos today. And I can't believe that we're even having a conversation that all of these babies that were murdered, how were they murdered? How brutally were they murdered? Um, and, and just imagine that there are people who consider themselves soldiers of liberation, but in the process of supposedly trying to liberate territory, find it necessary, moral, and just to kill families and to kill babies. 
How that happens, I don't think is really the point. But we have seen a lot of beheadings. There are many photos of these things. There are videos of them too. Um, but if you find yourself a person saying, well, actually, the number of beheadings is... <laughs> I can only say to you that the number of innocents, civilians... Um, and I suppose if you're one of these people, like I've seen on Instagram today, some podcast producers who apparently produced the, what, a Obama Springsteen podcast or something on Instagram saying that because conscription is a thing in Israel that uh, young Israelis have to deal with, that they are all essentially combatants, even if they're at peace festivals, uh, dancing in the middle of the night in the wee hours of the morning when people in hang gliders come in roll grenades into rooms in which they've taken cover and then rake it with gunfire. And it's justified to some people who make a lot of money in uh, podcasts and uh, sitting comfortably in Los Angeles. So the arguments about this stuff, the conversations about this stuff have been so painfully stupid and missing the point. If the main conversation that you're having is about the number of babies who were decapitated or just stabbed or uh, shot. Um, we do have evidence that a pregnant woman had a child carved out of her stomach. And this is just a few days after these atrocities were reported. If you want to kind of hear confirmation of what actually happened, the survivor stories from that concert and the survivor stories from some of these kibbutzim that were raided, um, towns that were raided, the problem is there are not many of them because there were not many survivors. So the stuff that you do here is so astonishing and shocking that for one to spend time on Twitter debating just the exact method of child execution, of baby murder, uh, strikes me as, how should I put this? I'm a little off base. Anyway, here's my conversation with uh, Orrin Kessler about what's happening now in, in his, his country and going back to 1936 to get a historical perspective on where some of these issues start. We know of new methods of attack. Well, in that preamble, you got an introduction the to Trojan the great Orrin Kessler. And I column. will say again column. that column. you guys should go column. buy his book, Palestine, 1936, which, um, as I told Orrin in an email, I started reading about two weeks ago. And I, I don't want to say that that's prescient at all, but if you read the book, and I'm about halfway through it, you'll see a lot of uh, echoes of what is happening today, unfortunately. But Orrin Kessler, who lives in Tel Aviv, but is in New York at the moment, um, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. I want to start, uh, it's kind of impossible with what's happening right now to not start on a grim note, um, because every note has been grim for the past week. Um, but I want you to tell me about Tomer Shoham. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tomer was the uh, son of my cousin Michal. Uh, we are a, a very small family. I only have three first cousins in the world, um, uh, one of whom is Michal, and her son, her middle son, was named Tomer. Um, he was a platoon commander in an elite unit called the Nachal Reconnaissance Unit. Uh, he was 23 years old, and on, uh, on Saturday, uh, during this massive onslaught, he was... Uh, 
He was killed by a Hamas gunman in Karim Shalom, right, uh, right next to uh, Gaza. And we, we found out the next day. And of course, my cousins and my whole family out in Israel are, are, are sitting Shiva right now. Um, they, they, um, well, I'll tell you a bit, a bit more about, about Tomer, the, the person. Tomer was, of course, when anyone dies, um, we, we tend to eulogize them as, uh, as, as the warmest, the kindest people. But Tomer really, really was. Uh, that's how my, my partner and I, my wife and I talked about him. Every time we met him, we, we were just amazed at how, how warm, how kind he was. He was always smiling. Um, he always wanted to be a warrior. I remember when he was a little kid, I, I, I knew him my whole life. And I remember when he was a little kid, you know, we, we'd, we'd ask his parents what to bring him for a gift. And he always wanted a, a, you know, a sword, a plastic sword or a plastic gun. Or, you know, he had a, he had a little photo in his room of his great grandfather on a, on a horse in one of the very earliest Zionist uh, defense groups. And he would jump up on the bed and kiss the photo. So he, he always wanted to be a, a warrior, but he was, he was really the, the nicest kid you could ever meet. He was, the whole family was, for what it's worth, the whole family was vegetarian. The, his parents are big peaceniks. Her pe- his whole family would go to the protests against judicial overhaul every, every single week. There's a certain, I think there's various caricatures of Israel and of Israelis outside the country. But this is a, this is a, a peacenik verging on pacifist family whose son always wanted to go to a combat unit, was an extremely successful soldier, had all kinds of citations as an outstanding soldier. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Tomar. He was a he was a great kid, and we're obviously in touch with the family over there. Um, they're surrounded by loved ones. The shiva is a great a great tradition for bereaved families, and uh, and we're thinking about him all the time. And you say it's bodies are overwhelming the morgues and um, people in the IDF. I mean, there's a thousand, eleven hundred in those first couple of days. Is that about right? Is that what we have now as a as a tally? The latest figures I saw were twelve hundred, but they seem to go up by a hundred every few hours. So yeah, and that's and that is all from the first couple of days. These first two days, it seems to me that the vast majority were the very first day, were Saturday. The vast majority. That's my understanding. I mean, no ground operation has been launched into Gaza yet. So that's right, and and people those numbers to go up. That's true. That's true, and people have been killed by rockets, but nothing remotely to account for those numbers. These are these are unconscionable numbers. Or in your journalist, your historian, I mean, you count as a historian, this Palestine 1936 book, one one of the very few books, um, as you point out, that has been written about um, the Arab revolt in, I guess, 36 to 39. You know a lot about this stuff. You've made this your life in so many ways. You live in Tel Aviv. You're Israeli, too. You're an Israeli citizen, I presume, right? I'm a dual citizen, yeah. Yeah. You're a dual citizen, yeah. When this happened, and you just happened in, in, in very bad timing, I mean, in some ways, I mean, we could say it's good timing, but, you know, bad timing that this happens and you're not in the country, in a country that you love dearly, you're in the United States. Was this something that you expected that said, you know, we're on the precipice of this? I mean, we've seen stuff happening in the West Bank. Obviously, the, the government of Bibi Netanyahu's government has been weakened considerably recently. Was there any expectation that something this kind of grievous could happen at this time? No, the answer is no. This seems to have caught everybody off guard. Uh, this is an all systems failure on the part of the IDF, on the part of the government. I, I woke up 
I was in New York City, as you mentioned, that morning, and I, I somebody called me at 8 a.m. for some TV commentary. So that woke me up, and then I kind of checked my alerts, and, and I had one that said 40 Israelis killed in Hamas attack. I said, what the hell? 40 Israelis? What? I, I can't remember numbers like that. I can't remember the last time 40 Israelis were killed in a single day. You know, we, we yeah. there's a, one of the most infamous attacks on Israelis is the Park Hotel attack and during the second intifada in the early 2000s. I think 32 people were killed there. Yeah. And this was, yeah. it was, it was horrific, of course, but it's, it's remembered as really a, an awful, an awful day for Israel. We're in, we're in the territory of 1200 right now with twice that many wounded and the vast majority of them civilians. And we haven't even talked about the abductees. I mean, this is, this is just, it's just astonishing. It's unthinkable. It's I I, I tweeted earlier that the, this the one word keeps ringing in my head, and it's nightmare. This is the doomsday yeah. scenario. This is the nightmare. It's 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 unthinkable on on so many to levels. To be clear, this is the as far as casualties are concerned, both dead and wounded. This is the worst day in Israel's history, with no comparison. And and again, the event that it's being compared to, if at all, is the Yom Kippur War in 1973, in which Israel was caught off guard. By the armies of of Egypt and Syria, and yeah, at, at, but there's in in many ways this is worse. In me, in very many ways this is worse. Uh, on one hand, Israel's very existence was uh, at risk in '73, the way it isn't now. But if you look at the hum at the at the human cost, the human toll, you know, the Yom Kippur War, the casualties were overwhelmingly, if not in, I think entirely, overwhelmingly military. They were soldiers. They were people like Tomer who signed up to defend the country. Today, on Saturday, they were overwhelmingly civilians. There were 260 mm -hmm. plus people killed at this music festival. You were, you know, ravers at 7 a.m. in the desert. The, the, uh, the last figures I saw were about 170 soldiers. So, you know, you could do the math and that's about a thousand civilians. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you, yeah. You mentioned that you're Tomer's family, <laughs> vegetarians and peaceniks. And um, I visited a kibbutz in November uh, with a group of journalists. And it was funny because they were the loveliest people in the world. You know, we're kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them because they're all socialists. You know, <laughs> there's a bunch of us who were decidedly not socialists. And they were great and they were fantastic. And then um, when you inquire about it, you find out that 15 people there were murdered. And, yeah. I mean, these are people that you would associate with things like peace now, and right. um, whatever kind of rump of the labor party that still exists right. in Israel. And, um, you know, for yeah. a group of people that discriminate in the sense that they discriminate by by wantonly killing Jews, they don't discriminate on which ones they kill. So no. um, that, that hasn't, it's just astonishing to me to see that those people that I met uh, recently, how, so many of them were killed. The, the, the kibbutzim and the moshavim around Gaza are, are really their stronghold of the kind of old Israeli left, the old secular Israeli left. Um, you know, Hamas can call them settlers all at once. And it's and just uh, since we were talking about my little experience on that day, as, as you know, it was, it was also my wedding day uh, that this happened. Yeah. So, um, not, uh, not what I expected to be to be waking up to but of course once once you start to realize what's happening all the other concerns about you know rain in central park tend to fade away very quickly so uh so that was my wedding day and that was so the day this that, was that before was you killed. got married this was the day yeah, I, the day i woke you. up exactly this was the morning i woke up uh the wedding was set for the for the late afternoon yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so as somebody who's studied this stuff for so long 
the thing that so few people can answer right now in the speculation that I've seen has been all over the place. But what does Orrin Kessler think when he thinks of Hamas's leadership planning something like this and whether the Wall Street Journal story about Iranian involvement is correct or not? I mean, what is the goal of this? Because if you look back in history and you look back in 1972, for instance, in the Munich massacre, none of that worked out well for the Palestinians. These large scale um, massacres of, of Israeli civilians never end up achieving anything for the Palestinian cause, if anything, setting it back uh, significantly. Why do you think this happened? Well, it's very it's very good for Hamas, uh, whether it's good for Palestinians or not. There are widespread celebrations across the Palestinian territories, sadly, it has to be said, and across the Arab world, and even in certain places in, in the United States and in Europe, in solidarity with, with this onslaught. So they, right now, it, it doesn't, it gives me no joy to say it, but right now, they're the heroes of the Palestinian world, the Arab world, not everybody, but their, their popularity has soared. Uh, I think we just have to admit that fact. So it's, it's in their interest. And moreover, they, they understand the lay of the land. They understand that, that Israel will now be, has already begun pounding Gaza very forcefully. And that, that works to their advantage as well in the eyes of, of the world. Yeah. So whatever sympathy we have now for Israel, however, Hamas apologists may be struggling a bit now to convince all of us that that beheading babies and kidnapping women and old people is a righteous thing. Uh, whatever res- resistance, as it were, they're coming across now. I think over the next few days, the world has a very short attention span, and you know, again, it'll just be perceived as Israel uh, applying disproportionate force upon hapless Gazans because it feels like it. Let's talk about that because you know, Americans, Europeans. Um, have a very short attention span. It has been a couple of days of reporting, and some of it very good reporting, about what has happened to Israeli civilians and the crimes committed by Hamas. That seems to be turning a little bit now and a little bit towards Israel's response. And as I emailed you, I've got a couple of emails from listeners who said, you know, look, What about these arguments about disproportionate force from Israel? What about these arguments that, well, the occupation of the West Bank is a problem and, you know, this doesn't justify what the the people of Hamas, the the terrorists of Hamas do, but you got to understand them. And again, this is not my argument that this is one I've heard and I'm sure you've heard about 40 million times in your life. How do you respond to people who say, look, I I don't support this, but... And as Salman Rushdie used to say about people um, talking about free speech, he'd call them the butt brigade. I believe in free speech, but. And what about the butt brigade here um, talking about, you know, Israeli crimes and an open air prison in Gaza and an apartheid state? I mean, how do you generally respond to people when they say that to you? I generally try not to get involved in that kind of thing. But um, but look, if I guess I would say this, if you can make the same argument about Americans, for example, then it's hard to see how it would apply to Israelis. Again, this onslaught has been compared to, to 9-11 for Americans. So if, if you run the numbers between the proportion of Americans killed um, out of the whole country, out of the whole population, uh, versus the number of Israelis killed in such a small country, this comes out to about 12 times the death toll of, of 9-11, uh, with twice that many wounded. So we're, that's 100,000 people t- killed and wounded. And again, the, the one of the most horrific elements of this is the fact that it's it's ongoing. You've got 150 captives 
uh, in Gaza. Um, so, okay, so that's that's just in terms of numbers. So if you, <laughs> the people making this argument, the, the yes but argument would have to be able to sign up for the following kind of premise. Uh, America has done really bad things. America had Abu Ghraib. America killed a lot of civilians in Iraq. Uh, America has mistreated Native Americans and Black people and done all and done all kinds of bad stuff in the world. Therefore, uh, you can kind of understand 9/11. Also, if you know paragliding uh, members of Al Qaeda were to show up at Burning Man and massacre hundreds of people and take hundreds more back to Afghanistan, you, you can kind of understand. You know, I don't support it, but hey. What are you going to do? You know, what would you do? So unless unless they can make that argument and... Unfortunately, many of them do. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> it's This stuff isn't really that complicated. And then when you get down to it, you know, if Hamas were really serious about resistance and all the rest of it, resisting, even, you know, resisting uh, the siege of Gaza, if that were really the goal, they'd be attacking the IDF, right? They'd be attacking IDF troops. I wouldn't support that. Mm -hmm. I'm a former IDF soldier myself. My family and friends are in the IDF. But there's some historical precedent for that kind of thing. It's It all goes out the window once you start targeting civilians. This is really extremely simple. Yeah. Every single bullet directed at women, children, civilians, old people, every single one of those bullets could have been directed at an IDF soldier. And it's not. They're not. Because the point is to terrorize. So it's really, it's very, could, very simple. They could also target the Egyptians too, when you realize that the Rafa gate and the Egyptians and Sisi said yesterday that we're not going to open it up. I mean, we have our our, yeah. our own um, issues to deal with. Um, and that yeah. hasn't been widely reported. I don't think many people know uh, the yeah. Egyptian role in a lot of this. But yeah, to your point, I mean, this is something that is said pretty frequently about America too. It's the kind of root causes theory. People do this because of X and Y root causes. And I hear people mouthing this quite frequently, and I don't think they really know what they're talking about. But the argument is the occupation. I mean, obviously, Gaza hasn't been occupied by the, the Israelis since 2005, a unilateral withdrawal by Ariel Sharon, of all people. But um, the West Bank is now the focus. This is, well, obviously, Gaza, too, because there's a blockade. And that's the open air prison argument that these people are suffering there. And I can't possibly imagine how people make the leap to yes, and so let's kill babies. But yeah. that seems to be most of the argument that I'm seeing on Twitter, uh, which is which is too depressing to even look at these days. I would just say this. I think if you were to go to one of these appalling protests, and I saw there was one at University of Wisconsin-Madison and Manchester in the UK. I think there was even one in New York. These appalling kind yes. of pro, you know, pro-baby murder protests and ask uh, people what, what constitutes the occupation. Is the occupation, uh, you know, Nablus, Ramallah, and Gaza? Or is it Tel Aviv and Haifa? And, and I think 99 out of 100 will tell you it's the latter. Yeah. So it kind of gives the lie to the idea that these people beheading babies or 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 those celebrating what, they, what they've done uh, are simply frustrated with the lack of progress towards a two-state solution. It's it's madness. It's it's yeah. complete and utter madness. That's not to say here's the you know, obligatory throat clearing. That's not to say that... Uh, I and many of my friends don't have all kinds of concerns about what's what ha what's happening in the West Bank, but it's just it does just doesn't compute. It does not compute. Does anyone really think? Could anyone go on a lie detector? Any of these people at these protests? 
and tell you that if Israel pulled out of the West Bank, that there would be peace and quiet for Israel? Do they actually, of course not. Nobody believes that. I mean, it's it's the old cliche that is true that if you um, disarm Palestinians, you have peace. If you disarm Israelis, you have genocide. Uh, yeah. Something to that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's something to that. I mean, I, um, a disarmed Israeli population would be would would have seen what we saw well exactly a couple of days ago. This uh, this is we would have seen that earlier. Exactly, yeah. and this is you know you you. When you hear your, you know, very right-wing friends saying, you know, that the, the Palestinians, if they could, would, would simply slaughter us in the streets, it can sound hysterical or, or alarmist, but, but that's exactly what happened. There was, there was a mass, the moment that, that uh, these Hamas terrorists were able to, they slaughtered as many Jews as they could. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's unthinkable. My dear friend, I think you're friends with Eli Lake, too, on the show the other day. And Eli was at pains to point out that, you know, he doesn't believe that a majority um, or an overwhelming majority of people in Gaza, and we can't presume that they support Hamas because they're victims of Hamas too, which I think is a, is a perfectly reasonable point. But it's also, um, even if it were 40%, uh, that's enough to cause unbelievable death and chaos. And, you know, and, and also believe people when they say uh, things in, for instance, the charter and the, ex of the existence of their so-called political party. It's, it's a death cult, not a party, but it says the destruction of Israel is, is what it desires. It does not desire a two-state solution. Look, these are people who, who, who kill as many Israelis as they can at every single opportunity. We don't even need to look at their charter. I mean, I don't know what the proportion so of, How does one of, respond to yeah. this? I mean, you know, going into Gaza... You know, laying siege Gaza, and, and look, I mean, there's been some problematic things, which, you know, I kind of understand this said in, in horror and frustration about, about kind of leveling Gaza, but, you know, going into Gaza where the Hamas leadership makes sure that military communications, et cetera, installations are nestled into um, civilian neighborhoods and schools, et cetera, it's going to be ugly and uglier than it's it's been already. I mean, when people say that, look at what the Israelis are doing, this is disproportionate. Is there another option? Um, and this is the thing that I keep thinking about. Well, let's pretend, because none of us want to see innocent children in, in the Palestinian territories die. Nobody wants that. And if they do, they're psychopaths. Nobody wants that. But what is the other option? Are, what are the options that are available to the IDF and to the Israeli government at this point? I wish I knew. Uh, I, 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 needless to say, trust within Israel of the IDF has to be at an all-time low. I don't think anyone yeah. can really um, trust what the IDF is saying at this point. This was a failure the likes of which Israel has never seen. And it's just, it's, I know I keep using all these uh, hyperbolic words, but it's, it, you know, this this happened in 2023 when Israel is a wealthy country, when Israel you know has a higher GDP than than the per, per capita than Britain and France. It's a high tech power. It's a military power. You know, there was a time when Israel was was poor and and vulnerable. It's not now. It's not in the in in terms of its capabilities. And to be uh, to to just have this all out complete absolute failure on every front. In which you're 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 leaving civilians to fend for themselves for hours, 
It's mm-hmm. just, uh, again, I hate to keep repeating the word, but it's unthinkable, it's unconscionable. So, it's really difficult now for Israelis to listen to the IDF when they tell them we're going we're gonna to destroy Hamas, both because of this massive failure, but also because what, what, what has the IDF been doing since the Hamas takeover? If it could have been done, it would have been done already. Uh, there have been several rounds of fighting with, with Hamas already. There's all, there's every time there's a lot of talk and a lot of bluster. And usually it buys a bit of time. It buys a year or two of relative calm until the next round of fighting. It's very difficult to see how this will be different. Okay, perhaps they'll apply more firepower this time, but that will simply, inevitably, it'll kill more civilians, which works, uh, which, you know, the collateral damage as they, you know, civilians will inevitably suffer. There's no infrastructure in Gaza like there is in Israel to, for civilians to take, uh, to, 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 to take cover. Uh, so all of this works in Hamas's favor, and moreover, again, I have to keep bringing it back to the captives, to the abductees. There are 150 some Israelis in Gaza, and first of all, they could absolutely—they're—they're they're just as vulnerable as anybody else to being killed in these, uh, in these, in these airstrikes or in the ground operation that Israel is almost certainly about to embark on. Uh, but also, Hamas has threatened, and I don't think anyone can doubt that they mean to do this. They have threatened that uh, with every civilian target that Israel hits without a warning, they will execute a captive on live stream. I don't see how anyone could doubt that they that they mean business. And so, what is I mean, this is what what is Israel to do? I I really don't see. You know, Israel has warned. Gazans to leave the territory? Well, they can leave the territory. That much is true. That mm-hmm. much, is when, you know, as much as the, the Hamas apologists lie and propagandize, uh, that, that is true. Because as you mentioned, Egypt won't let them in. Israel certainly won't let them in. So they have nowhere to go. If you recall about, what, nearly 10 years ago, there was, not 10 years ago, this was what, 2009, 2008, 2009, that there was an Israeli soldier named Gilad Shalit who was, uh, yes. who was captive. I was just was taken, about to mention him, yeah. Yeah, who was taken prisoner in Gaza, okay? This is a soldier, one soldier, and he was kept there for about five years, and it really tore the country mm-hmm. apart. What to do about this? Do we have to get him back at every price for the sake of his poor mother and father? We can't just let him wither away there. And ultimately, Israel paid the price of a, a thousand some terrorists being released from prison. And that's one soldier. Yeah. Now we've got 150 people, uh, most of them civilians. This includes children. This includes babies. This includes some children with their parents, without their parents, um, old people. So it's like the most disturbing episode of Fauda uh, come to life. I don't think people who know me would consider me hyperbolic or alarmist. I think I'm a pretty even-keeled guy most of the time. But this is the doomsday scenario. It's hard for me to imagine things going worse. Yeah, I think, and this is from memory, but I think it was 1,100 prisoners that were swamped for one. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a situation you don't want to be in. I mean, if the Hamas is saying we're going to execute people as you come in and as if for any civilians that are killed in Gaza, I mean, what do you do? I mean, obviously, Israel wants its people back, as shown by Gilead Shalit. I mean, that's an enormous price to pay. You know, in the long run, 
I don't think that that was not weighing on them when they, when, or in their minds when they were taking hostages themselves. We got 1,100 people before for one. Imagine what we'll do now. Of course. They, if they invade us, we'll execute them on camera. It's the it's sinister, mustache twisting, Machiavellian evil, but it is one that one has to deal with, you know? I don't envy anyone making decisions. And of course, today we found out that um, the, uh, the Netanyahu government has entered into a kind of grand wartime coalition with Benny Gantz and some of uh, the people who are, are great uh, haters of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu at this point. Uh, what do you what do you make of that news? Was that did that surprise you? I suppose it didn't surprise me very much. No, it didn't surprise me. I think it makes sense. Uh, it's happened in the past in times of, of crisis. I'm hesitant to do too many political, analytical hot takes at this moment of such kind of human tragedy. Yeah. I think it's hard to see how how Netanyahu still has a political career after this. I thought the top brass of the IDF would have resigned already. Um, the the defense minister, the, uh, I mean, maybe there's something to be said for a little bit of continuity, but they have to all resign eventually. It's a disaster. I really, you know, and on the one hand, I personally am not a huge fan of Netanyahu. I've never, I've never voted for him. Um, and I wouldn't be uh, upset to see him leave the political scene, but also what comes next? Israel had what four or five elections um, mm -hmm. before before Bibi, before Netanyahu was elected. I mean, the, the country was already, as I mentioned, torn apart by this judicial overhaul. There was a level of ugliness within and rancor and hatred within Israeli society that that was really unprecedented. Um, and I think you know, if there's any silver lining in this horror, it's that it'll it'll help bring. Israelis together. Um, but this was a very, the, the social fabric was very much weakened even before all of this. When I eventually go back to Israel after my visit here in the States, I can't imagine I'll be going back to the same country. I mean, of course, Americans still talk about 9-11 all these years later. They talk about it all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's an extremely formative, traumatic event. And I just, I can't imagine that, that anything will, 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 will be the same. No, I mean, it was an incredibly formative event for me. I mean, I was in New York on that day, um, and well, that was the day that I decided that I wanted to be a journalist and actually stop sure. being a computer programmer, which is what I was sure. on the day before 9-11. And it was kind of a long path um, into journalism after that. But that, I mean, it was such a formative event for me that it, it, it changed my career and changed my life entirely. You know, and, and on the Israeli political scene, I mean, it's a very unique period when, when I was there and you had Ben Gavir and Smotrich and all these people coming into power who on paper seemed to me to be complete nutcase extremists. And it seemed to be a very sad moment in Israeli politics that, uh, that that was happening. And I saw so much rancor in the people that I spoke to. I mean, no two people agreed on anything, but that seems to yeah. be the Israeli way. Sure. Um, but can I ask you quickly about what you've seen? Because you're in a unique position as somebody who's an Israeli who lives in Tel Aviv and is in uh, the United States during the beginning and in the current um, phase of this nightmare. Um, what have you thought about the um, the coverage of it in the U.S.? I mean, I've seen a lot of complaints. People are, you know, going after each other hard online about, you know, certain things, certain statements, etc., I mean, what has been your impression of how it's been covered and, you know, how it's been processed by activists, et cetera? I mean, we've talked about some of these um, groups that have come out and, uh, and quote unquote, protest. I said they're, they're actually celebrations. 
um, like the DSA, the Democratic Socialists, or as Eli Lake said in our podcast, they should rename themselves the National Socialists of America, which I think is appropriate <laughs> and a very Eli thing to say. But um, what is your uh, take on all this stuff that you've seen um, from from the media in the U.S.? Yeah, it's not it's not been good uh, to put it mildly. It's been it's been very bad. I you know I try to take Twitter with a grain of salt because it's just an awful place. Um, yeah. You know, I've noticed it keeps it keeps switching me. I keep clicking on following, and then it clicks me back to the for you tab yeah. just to yeah. kind of show it's me never stuff. Never for that, you, by the way. It's not the stuff. Well, that you see. <laughs> they know it's just stuff that's going to piss me off, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. people I'm not even following. So, so with the caveat that Twitter is awful, I, I just I think the the legacy media, the mainstream media, has been not entirely bad, but it's just like yeah. you know, I, I saw the New York Times front page the day after the massacre on Sunday, the Sunday Times, the day after. And there were four photos, one of which showed a grieving family, okay? Now, the grieving family were relatives of Hamas terrorists who were killed while, while, while in Israel decapitating babies. I mean, it's, it's, it's bonkers. Like, I just, I just, what were they thinking, right? Uh, the Washington Post Twitter feed is just atrocious. I mean, it's, you know, there's, Every hour or two, there, there's some nonsense about, you know, we need more Palestinian representation in the media and, you know, which may be, may be true or not true, but it's just, it's just the same kind of woke nonsense that they would be tweeting, you know, if 1,200 people hadn't been slaughtered. It's just, you, when you follow the mainstream media here, I just, I just feel that you'd get the, you'd get the feeling that it's just yet another round of violence. Um, you know, again, the, the Israel is just is just going crazy with disproportionate uh, attacks on 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 poor Gazans just because of a few bad apples in Hamas. Like the, the the media is just not, at least the Times and Post. What I've what I've seen, they're just they're just so kind of caught up in certain certain narratives, and it's just they're just not really, yeah, they're not really bringing home the the. The atrocities of of the situation. I think the Times headline, the lead headline, was something like you know Israel pounds Gaza militants or something like that. Like that's not. And the subhead was you know this yeah. many people killed in Gaza. It's just I'm not saying. Well, of course, we have to report on, on the number of people killed in Gaza, but it's just this is not business as usual. This is an entirely new chapter in the history of this country and this conflict, and it has to be presented as such. I saw a. Um, reporter from the LA Times today hasn't really gotten much attention. I sent it to a few people who was doubting and saying that, you know, you cannot report on um, babies being beheaded because, you know, yeah. we don't have enough information, despite the fact that now we have Joe Biden has come out yeah. and said that he has seen the photos um, mm -hmm. that have been provided to him. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm happy they have been. And there's mm -hmm. been headlines saying that the IDF refuses to confirm this. And if you actually read the story, the IDF spokesman tells a reporter that um, you're going to have to trust me on this one. I'm not going to be sending around photos of people's uh, children that have been murdered and yeah. to confirm it to you. And that has been um, come out the other end as the IDF refuses to confirm this. So therefore, we should be skeptical. But this L.A. Times guy said, you know, we don't have any people talking about rapes. We have no evidence of rape. Someone yeah. responded to him. And this is his tweet. In response, says, um, update, I've seen only one eyewitness account so far of girls being raped at the music festival. 
Let's be specific with our reporting. If there's one eyewitness account so far, that's how it should be reported. A vague government claim is not enough. And then he responds to his own tweet. It should be noted that the witness also called for genocidal vengeance. Quote, if Gaza was on the map, Gaza don't continue to be on the map. So So you should take that into consideration when somebody saw their friends murdered and somebody raped next to them, that they had a moment of anger um, and said that that this guy from the LA Times said, well, that witness uh, called for genocidal vengeance, so they're not to be trusted either. I mean, this kind of stuff really, really uh, is strange to me. The, The Jerusalem correspondent of The Guardian, which I tweeted today and got an enormous amount of shit for this, by the way, which I was surprised by, um, saying that she was shocked and was it horrified. She said, I was horrified by the headlines in the British newspaper saying that 44 or 40 babies were beheaded um, when, in fact, we know some people were beheaded, but we don't know um, how many babies. And I responded like, you're horrified by the headline? I'm yeah. horrified by the beheading. And you're yeah. saying, well, they beheaded some, but we don't really know how many. And it's getting very specific. It's it's been kind of the opposite of Me Too in a way. <laughs> they want they want to see fifteen different it, witnesses for sexual assault. Um, yeah. For for you know on the battlefield, and it's not even a battlefield. That's an incredibly um, strange word to use because right. one thinks that these things happen on a battlefield. This was actually at a rave. It's not a battlefield. Um, it's the exact right. um, opposite of a battlefield. It was a peace festival. But um, but yeah, I think the media coverage has been have been, you know, really driving me a, a bit crazy. Some people have done, look, I thought Joe Biden's speech was very good. I don't know if you saw his yeah. uh, speech about this stuff, but I thought it was um, it was forceful and didn't uh, pull a lot of punches. Hey, Michael, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Looks like we cut out. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just, um, I can pick it up. I was just saying that, yep. uh, did you hear J- uh, Joe Biden's speech, which I thought was terrific? Not terrific. I thought it was very, very good. I did. I did. I thought it was very good. There was, there was no equivocation. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was just a bit of kind of you know, common sense. I mean, it's, uh, it, yeah, I thought it was very good. I thought it was very good. It really, it's, I mean, it's a softball. It should be very, very easy to be on the anti-baby decapitation uh, abductions of civilians, rape, parading women as trophies yeah. side of this argument. And yet in this very strange, confused and troubled world, troubled world that we live in, that seems to be um, more of an ask than, uh, than we realize. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one more thing before I let you go. Um, and this is more of a historical thing because, I mean, you wrote a book, um, you know, and as I said earlier, in a kind of undercovered event um, by historians um, that is called Palestine, Palestine, 1936, and about the Arab revolt. And I don't know if, what you called in the book. Do you call it the Arab revolt? I mean, that's what it's been called by so many people. Yeah, years. usually. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Um, but when so much of this conversation, I think on both sides is about history, right? Uh, I mean, this is the largest bloodletting since the Holocaust. And the Holocaust was very heavy on people in Israel, and rightfully so. I mean, the establishment of Israel in 1948 um, came just mere three years after six million people were slaughtered by the Nazis and their handmaidens. Um, And on the other side of this equation, there is constant conversation about history and about, you know, the Nakba in 1948, um, which is what the Palestinians... Um, call the establishment of the state of Israel, basically. The, um, um, the Nakba in, in Arabic is um, the 
how was it translated? Well, it's a catastrophe. So it's, catastrophe. it's 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 really a direct translation of Shoah in Hebrew, which also means catastrophe. Oh, it's the same word. It's the yeah, same word. Yeah. I don't. I I haven't looked into you know whether that was a deliberate uh, choice, but yeah, it is. It's it means the exact same thing. So when you talk to people about this, you hear, you know, places like Dir Yassin. Yeah. You hear about the Nakba. You hear about, you know, the fact that the Israelis uh, don't want peace and have forfeited. I mean, I've seen this 15 times a day on Twitter, forfeited a number of opportunities to establish a Palestinian state. When you think of history as somebody who's a historian about this stuff, um, a lot of these kind of narratives about history, it's two competing narratives. So you have to know your history if you're going to fight people about this online or if you're going to debate people about this. What is the thing that you see most frequently about the sort of recent past or even, you know, back to 1948 and back to 1936 where you wrote your book about that, that you think people really get wrong and misunderstand about this conflict? You hear a lot that... Uh you know, that, that uh, the West Bank has been occupied since 1967, you know, that, that Gaza has been occupied in one way or another, allegedly since 1967. But, but of course, at the very least, this is a conflict about, about 1948. It's not about 1967. As I mentioned earlier, it's about Israel's very existence. But really, and this is what I kind of, uh, what I kind of write about in the book or what I try to show in the book um, is how much the con- the parameters of the conflict were set even before Israel existed. Arguably, it's a conflict about 1917, namely the Balfour Declaration. I think that's probably the most accurate mm-hmm. way to present it. Um, so, you know, my, my book takes place over a decade before Israel's creation and the dynamics of the conflict are so incredibly similar. In terms of, uh, well, at the time, the main bone of contention was immigration. The Palestinians, the the, the Arabs of Palestine were were dead set against any further immigration. Um, but you know, the uh, the the there, there was essentially um, almost across the board rejection of of any kind of political Zionism at the time uh, on mm-hmm. on the Arab side of the equation. There was there were all kinds of questions. Uh, on the Jewish side, about what kind of Zionism they were aiming for was it was it a was it a state was it some kind of canton what what were the borders of the state um, questions about terrorism I mean the period that I'm writing about is really the period in which Palestinian Arab nationalism really comes together against a common foe and in a common purpose namely fighting Zionism fighting Jews and their British imperial facilitator or handmaiden mm-hmm. there's there's a real debate on the Jewish side because there is a dissident Jewish armed group called the Irgun, which wages a, a, a campaign of terror against the Arabs of Palestine. And I got a bit of flack, mm-hmm. more than a bit, from certain right-wing circles uh, in Israel who, well, I, I have to say that I, the, the amount of flack that I've gotten is much less than I expected, but I've gotten a certain amount of flack mm-hmm. for portraying this Jewish terror campaign in quite a bit of uh, detail. And I think... I think if you're if you're um, faithful to the historical record, if you look at this period, it's simply uh, it's simply unignorable. There are dozens of attacks by this organization, the Irgun, against Arab civilians. And I think you know, in this book, I tried to be as balanced and as honest as possible. Uh, yeah, it comes through, by the way, in the in the bits that I've read. I mean, I'm I'm about a quarter of the way, halfway through it, and the, it seems that you're trying very hard to to give both sides of this story in a balanced way. I mean, obviously the Irgun 
the most famous um, event, shall we say, terrorist attack was the King David Hotel bombing in 1946 when 90-odd people died. I mean, that was a pretty pretty horrific uh, event. Mm. Right. And so I I, I really, I I, I tried to write it dispassionately. I tried to make, let all sides make their best case. Um, You know, it's, it would be, it would be hard for me to, uh, to do that right at this moment. I think, you know, since, since Saturday, I've been, you know, Israeli full stop. Um, yeah. you know, at, at a certain point, perhaps I'll try to regain that <laughs> complete dis- dispassion, but it's, it's incredibly difficult now. Um, so yeah, it's really you feel yourself taken, sort of overtaken by the emotion. Obviously it's affected you and your family in a very direct way. And obviously an attack on your, your country. I mean, one of your two countries, you're American and Israeli. Sorry. I mean, it, your feelings, I presume have, you know, overwhelmed, um, rationality. And I don't mean that in a critical way because it happened to me after nine 11. And I think it's entirely understandable that this happens. I mean, how have you been thinking about this stuff? Have you had to pull yourself back from, um, sort of pure anger and the hatred that something like this can produce? If I ever write a second book, I I, I certainly won't start it now because I just, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't, um, yeah, I have been overwhelmed by by emotion. Again, I don't think I'm a, a particularly emotional guy, not any more than the average, but uh it's yeah, it's 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 been very very difficult. I haven't written any articles since this happened. Uh I don't yeah, it probably wouldn't be my best work. So, any kind of anger and rage have you I've, I've kind of Have you thought about writing anything? <laughs> you know, I I post my thoughts to Twitter and my partner now my wife tells me to kind of watch it you know i've got a book out there i don't want to be end up on the wrong side of twitter but it's just that's where i pour out my rage i guess um to try to not subject my my wife and her family to it <laughs> if if you were to write something now even if it was kind of governed by rage um in in anger what would you write about i mean what is the thing that has kind of stuck in your brain that you want to get out there and you want to tell people as somebody who is an expert on this stuff. And most of us aren't, I mean, is there one theme that has been kind of sitting with you that you want to get out there? I suppose it might be something like, you know, I spent five years writing this book. I spent a whole lot of time alone with the the historical record, the primary sources, spent a whole lot of time immersed in the Palestinian Arab national movement and in Zionism. I don't think it's that hard to comprehend the notion that the Palestinians or at that time, Palestinian Arabs, whatever the terminology might be, would not be thrilled about the Zionist enterprise. They would not be thrilled, to put it mildly, that they would oppose turning that land from an Arab majority one into a Jewish majority one. I don't think even proud Israelis should have that much difficulty understanding that. I think Real friends of the Palestinians need to make extremely clear to them that this is not the way, that barbarism and cruelty and terrorism, that no no good is done to Palestinians. There's no service done to Palestinians by pretending that this is civilized behavior, that this is acceptable, that this is anything short of barbaric and condemnable and contemptible. That's this, We have to be honest. And it has to be made very, very clear. I mean, again, I'm sorry to sound preachy here, but human beings operate on incentives. And it has to be extremely clear that this kind of thing massively hurts the image of Palestinians in the eyes of the world. It hurts their interests. 
and again, real friends of the Palestinians, real seekers of peace have to be entirely unequivocal uh, about that, that fact. I don't know if that would be a very good article, but that's the feeling that I, <laughs> that I have right now. I mean, I think it's been a massive own goal, as the British say, for Hamas and the people who associate Hamas with the Palestinian cause. I mean, we see people out there, uh, Palestinian solidarity groups, etc., out there cheering, and they seem to believe that Fatah is a spent force. Mahmoud Abbas doesn't matter, although he seems to be rather positive about what happened too. So there doesn't seem like a lot right. of daylight between the two of them at this point. Right. But, you right. know, when you were writing your book and you're looking at that period in the you know, kind of pre-World War II period in the region. And you have people like the Grand Mufti as a character who ended up spending some time in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and, and was essentially a fascist himself. That, you know, the difference is when you look back at Black September in 1972, which is basically just, the you know, a, a cover version of the PLO. It's an Arafat operation. But those groups were mostly secular. The PFLP was a secular Marxist group. Is the problem now that political Islam, which nobody seems to be talking about in the past three or four days, has taken over and they don't really care about negotiations that much because they believe that this is the divine will of God. And you cannot find a video of somebody attacking a civilian, uh, attacking a military outpost without the shouts of God is great. I don't think you would have heard that so much in an attack in 1970. I don't know if that's the case in, in the 30s. Was that not the case so much in, in the late 1930s? Well, the Middle East is a very religious place. And I think even the, even the secular uh, groups in the Middle East are not necessarily secular in the, the way that, that we in the West might think. But as you pointed out, I mean, the, the atrocities committed by Black September in 1972 were, were committed by avowed uh, Marxists. So Islamists hardly have a monopoly on barbarism, yeah. although they do seem to conduct lion's share. There was certainly a very strong religious element in the 1930s, but there was a certain countervailing force in Arab society, a certain sort of more, if not westernized, then western friendly sort of elite and urban elite that was interested in more advancement and modernity for, for the Arab peoples. And that kind of elite doesn't really, if, if it exists in the Palestinian territories, it's very quiet. It's mostly, it's mm -hmm. mostly been run aground. There's no significant countervailing spirit in the mainstream Palestinian discourse to, and, and again, it gives me no joy to say this, and maybe in a few weeks I would present this a little differently, but it's unfortunately the case that extremism has become the rule in the Palestinian discourse. And when I say has become, I think you can lay a lot of that at the feet of Haj Amin. It's really going back, the, the Mufti of, of Jerusalem. I think one of the great what-ifs of, of the period that I'm writing about is what would have happened had the British chosen somebody else to be the most powerful man in Arab Palestine by naming him Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and the head of the Supreme Muslim Council. It was actually the Jewish High Commissioner of Palestine, Herbert Samuel, who named him to that position in one of the great blunders of history. We can only wonder what might have happened ha had the Arabs of Mandate Palestine had a different leader and, you know, things would have looked, could have looked completely different in 1948. There could have been no refugee crisis, no displacement of Palestinians. There, there wouldn't be a massive refugee population in Gaza. Everything would have been completely 
different. It's unfortunate that the uh, Haj Amin wasn't really relegated to the dustbin of history after his open collaboration with Hitler, but rather only after the Nakba, as you mentioned, after the Palestinians mm-hmm. were routed in 48, then he was finally thrown in the dustbin of history because he was a loser, because he had mm-hmm. led them to ruin. It's very sad. It's very unfortunate. Orrin Kessler, um, <laughs> author of Palestine, 1936. And I can say that at the end of this podcast because we're talking about it and you listeners should go out and buy it. It is um, one of the only books of its kind, as I've mentioned a couple of times, and it's written in a dispassionate way and in an almost journalistic way. So if you are a little reticent about it because you say, I don't really know that time period, um, Oren does an incredible job of, hold, of, of holding your hand and uh, pulling you uh, through this, and you'll get a unbelievable idea of what was going on prior to the formation of the State of Israel in 1948. It'll give you a, a, a look into how that happened in the forces and the countervailing forces that were trying to prevent that from happening and trying to create it. So it's a terrific book. And um, we thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. And if I could just um, add that if people, if people want to donate to, um, to victims, to, to bereaved families and, and survivors of, of terrorism, I think one very good place to donate is um, the Jewish Agency for Israel. They have an emergency fund set up. They can, they can Google it. Your listeners can Google Jewish Agency and they will find a place to donate. So thank you, Michael, so much for your for your thoughts and your kind words. And um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you in, in better times. Thank you.